So we're, we are going to cover the whole chapter, chapter 29, even though it seems like that little last bit at the end is somewhat unrelated. Hopefully by the end you'll see how it all fits together. And then we're going to continue with the uh, wives and children narrative next week. Genesis chapter 29. There's definitely a lot of interesting stuff that goes on in this passage. Uh, we see an interesting interchange between Jacob and the shepherds. The shepherds remind me of uh, any sort of blue-collar workers that are on their lunch break. And you try to maybe ask a question, get some directions, and you get very short, very curt answers. Where, where are you from, my brothers? Jacob says, and we're from Haran. <laughs> Do you know Laban? We know him. <laughs> and then he says, he sees uh, Rachel coming, and evidently he wants to have some one-on-one conversation with her. So he says to these guys, look, it's still the middle of the day. Go, water your sheep and go back out in the field. And they say, well, we can't because we have to wait till all the sheep are gathered here. Presumably it has something to do with them not wanting to roll away the large stone. Right? And so, anyway, Rachel shows up, Jacob rolls away the large stone, and he's like, okay, well now you lost your chance. So he, he waters her sheep, and then uh, proceeds, the shepherds kind of drop off the narrative, and he proceeds to talk to her about it all. He goes to Laban, and it says that he told Laban all these things which is presumably the history of why or who he is and how he got here and so on and so forth now you will remember that Laban met Abraham's servant back in chapter 24 and Abraham's servant came laden with gold and many other treasures from Abraham's household but we will recall that Jacob left in a hurry to run away from his brother Esau and he had such little belongings such few belongings with him that he you'll remember in chapter 28 put a pillow or a rock pardon me under his head for a pillow so Jacob is actually showing up here empty handed and so when he tells Laban all these things Jacob or Laban is most likely having some kind of a sinking feeling where he realizes as he says in verse 14, this really is my nephew. Surely you are my bone and my flesh. But he likely is not very excited that Jacob has showed up here empty-handed. We see that Laban comes to Jacob in verse 15 and says, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Jacob's obviously had his eyes on Rachel. Because he says in verse 18, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. So because he has no gold, silver, he has no bride price with him, he says, well, I'll work for you in exchange for your daughter's hand in marriage. Now, a bride price at that time in that place was about three to four years. So Jacob's basically offering double. Which is why it seems that Laban does no bartering. Laban recognizes this is a good deal for Laban. And so he agrees. And then of course there's the infamous trick 
If you grew up in a church context or have hung around for a while, you've probably heard of this deception. Finally, after working seven years to marry Rachel, Laban sends Leah in instead of Rachel. And she, this is, of course, because the, bridal practice, or the marriage practices were that the bride would be veiled all the way into the chamber the night of the wedding. Of course, they didn't have lights, and, you know. <laughs> so, the, uh, this is what's going on here in this story. But what are we to make of it all? It's an, it's an interesting story. Uh, there's certainly some um, just personal interest themes, motifs, details that are thrown in. But what are we actually to make of this story? What is its significance for us? Well, this story in Genesis 29 comes, of course, on the heels of Genesis 28. And we'll remember Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, where God appeared to him and promised to be with him to keep him wherever he goes and to bring him back to his homeland. God says in chapter 28 and verse 15, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God has promised to be with Jacob for his good. In Genesis 29, we see this promise working itself out. God goes with Jacob for his good. And we see first in this chapter God's smiling providence. Genesis 29 and verse 1, our ESV translates it like this Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. The Hebrew apparently says something like this Then Jacob lifted up his feet and came to the land of the people of the east. So you can kind of see there's a spring in his step, he's a little bit lighter since this meeting with God where God has promised to be with him for his good wherever he goes and as he comes to Haran he finds his relatives not after a long arduous search but lo and behold he comes to a well and there are some shepherds there who actually know his relatives and then here comes his cousin Rachel with the sheep You can just imagine, I mean, obviously there's differences in population sizes and so on and so forth. But if you you just tried to just, without phones, without the internet, without anything, like go to Jamaica and find your relatives. You understand how hard that would be. But Jacob comes and all of a sudden he's there. Finding his relatives would have been something like finding a needle in a haystack. But here... It is. God's smiling providence is unfolding to him. He finds his relatives actually very easily. And at the end of what would have been a journey of most likely multiple weeks, and again, he wasn't traveling in a caravan of camels with the finest gum and balm and spices from places in that area. He's traveling so light that he would take a stone for a pillow. So after a journey of several weeks, he must have been relieved to find his family. And then, of course, he meets Rachel. 
and he's smitten with this girl. Verse 20 is, I would venture to say, among the most well-known verses of the Old Testament. For those who have grown up in a church context, this statement that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her, is actually pretty well known. Because it's a very poignant phrase, speaking to this great affection that he had for this woman. And so, imagine when not only he finds his relatives from whom he's supposed to take a wife, but presumably there's this some level of instant attraction here to Rachel. And as he gets to know her, obviously he just falls more and more in love with her. And this is not some fleeting fancy, but this is a sustained affection for this woman, such that he works twice the reasonable length of time in order that he might marry this woman. And all those years seem like a few days to him because of the great love that he has for her. And then we realize that in this seven years, though they've been living in the same household, there's been a purity to the relationship. Jacob says to Laban in verse 21, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. This is just a euphemism for taking her as his wife and enjoying the uh, intimacy that comes with marriage. This implies that they hadn't done so up to this point. And so there's a really, there's actually a very beautiful, pure, wholesome love in this passage where Jacob loves Rachel in a pure, deep, and wonderful way. And so the first thing that we see in this passage is God's smiling providence. God has promised to be with Jacob for his good. And so far, in everything that we've looked at, that's what we've seen. God is with Jacob for his good. He leads him to his family. And he provides this woman who is going to be his wife, who is basically his dream girl. Sometimes, God's benevolence towards us, His people, feels good. God is with us for our good, as He was with Jacob for His good. We saw that last week, even as we looked at Jacob's dream. God is with us for our good, as He was with Jacob for His good. And sometimes God's presence with us for our good feels good. Sometimes we feel God's care. Sometimes we feel God's benevolence. We read in Romans 8.32 that God did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all. We hear that old, old story. We say, tell me it again. Tell me that old, old story. Why? Because it sounds so sweet. Tell me that old, old story of Jesus and His love. We'd love to hear, God did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all. 
That's why redeeming love is our theme. It shall be, will be, when in glory. It feels good to think on Christ. It feels good to recognize that God's benevolence shown to us in the giving of His Son. It feels good to recognize God's benevolence shown to us in the giving of His Son. To recognize that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But at that time, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And He made us alive at that time together with Christ Jesus. Jesus' life of perfect righteousness becomes ours. We wrap ourselves, as it were, in the cloak of His righteousness. Such that God looks at us and sees perfect obedience to His law. Not because we've offered it up, but because we're clothed in what Christ has offered up to Him. And Jesus, on the cross, as we sing, paid it all. It is finished. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as Galatians says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God's benevolence towards us in this respect feels good. We hear Jesus say that whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that in the same manner as Christ was raised, so shall we be raised. We read all of these things. We think on all of these things. We hear of God's benevolence shown to us in these ways. And it feels like benevolence. It feels like goodness. It feels like care. It feels like love. The cross feels to us like smiling providence. Sometimes that's the way it is. God is with us for our good. And sometimes it feels good. We also see in this passage, however, that God is with Jacob for good, not only in God's smiling providence, but in God's disciplinary providence. We see in this passage that the deceiver is deceived. You remember that he was running to Haran from Isaac's household where he tricked his elderly father making him think that he was Esau in order that he might inherit the blessing. The deceiver is in this passage deceived. In Genesis chapter 27 and verse 35 Isaac says to Esau, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. In Genesis chapter 29 and verse 25, Jacob says to Laban, Why then have you deceived me? It's the same root word, both in the English and the Hebrew. The deceiver is here deceived. This is not karma, as that's not a Christian concept. 
But God's discipline of us is sometimes karma-like. In the sense that God causes us to be on the receiving end of the same sorts of sins that we commit. And I suspect that this is because God is trying to awaken our hearts to the unlovingness and therefore the unlawfulness of such actions. When we're on the giving end, doing something wrong to others, sometimes we feel like it's not that bad, but when the same things happen to us, we feel it. And we understand, so-and-so has not loved his neighbor like himself. And then we realize, oh, that means that I have not loved my neighbor as myself. So sometimes this is a means that God uses to discipline us for our sin. He works out situations such that the way that we have sinned against others, others in turn sin against us. We, like Jacob, get a taste of our own medicine. Now, you'll think, well, this is just one incident. Is this really severe discipline? Well, it's one incident that cost Jacob seven years of his life. Which is pretty significant. Jacob has worked seven years not to marry a woman. That Laban has not merely promised to give him a woman at the end of seven years. Laban has promised to give Jacob Rachel. And he's deceived and he's given Leah. There's that proverb that says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You can hang in there for a hard time when you know that the end is coming. But then when you think the time for the end has come, and then you realize that this is actually going to carry on much longer than you first thought, it makes the heart sick. And Jacob is drawn into an agreement for another seven years, which is extremely unfair. Jacob already has done twice the work that he should have to marry Rachel. It would be gracious, but also reasonable. Even if Laban wants to marry off both his daughters, it would be gracious and reasonable for him to give Rachel at the same time. But again, remembering that three or four years would be a reasonable amount of time. Laban exacts another seven. We speech to Laban's character. But here is Jacob. I mean, after he loves this girl. He works, he works so hard for so long. And it seemed like a few days to him because of the love that he has for her. What's he going to do now? Walk away? He really has no choice when Laban says another seven years. He commits to it and works another seven years for Rachel. Now, incidentally, just as a point of clarification, he gets to marry Rachel before those seven years are complete. After the bridal week of Leah, he's given Rachel 
as well. And as another point of clarification, polygamy is sinful. Just because this happened, it doesn't mean it should have happened or that Jacob did the right thing. We're just dealing with facts, not what ought to be. In Matthew 19, Jesus is very clear. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the three shall become one... Wait. And the two... And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is very clear about the ideal for marriage. So just because we read, we should, we should know by now in this series in Genesis, that just because the patriarchs do something doesn't make it right. We should know that by now. This is a story that sounds very much... Or these stories in Genesis sound very much like our own stories. Sinners who are saved by grace through faith in God and His promises and His provision of the Messiah. That's how Genesis reads. So this really, this whole thing shouldn't be happening. So when I talk about Laban should have given him Rachel, I'm operating within the context of what actually happened here. So in any case, this is actually a very severe Affliction for Jacob. It cost him seven years of his life, and just the deceitfulness of the action would have really would have really got to him. He would have really felt that. And doubtless he would have thought about deception and how evil deception is. And doubtless he would have thought about his own deception of his father Isaac and doubtless he would have thought about how evil that was and so God was disciplining him even as our brother read for us earlier in the service God disciplines those he loves and so not only was God with Jacob for his good in his smiling providence unfolded to him But God was with Jacob for his good in his disciplinary providence unfolded to him. And we see another instance of discipline here in this passage. This is where we introduce the wives and the children drama that unfolds in the next chapter and a bit. Jacob's low affection for Leah is reprimanded. Jacob's sin is evident from verse 30, which says, So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Some commentators say that it should be translated... Jacob loved Rachel instead of Leah. That that's the sense of it. But John Calvin notes that even if that's not the case, Jacob's still in sin. Let me quote him. Many think they fulfill their duty if they do not break out into mortal hatred. But we see that the Holy Spirit pronounces those as hated who are not sufficiently loved. 
And we know that men were created for this end, that they should love one another. Therefore, none will be counted guiltless of the crime of hatred, but he who embraces his neighbors with love. For not only will a secret displeasure be accounted as hatred, but even that neglect of brethren and that cold charity which ever reigns in the world. You understand what he's saying? Just because he didn't love Leah as he ought to have. Even if it doesn't mean that he loved Rachel instead of Leah, as in he loved Leah not at all. Even if it means he loved Leah a little bit and loved Rachel a lot. He should have loved Leah a lot. She's his wife. If we think, well, who can blame him? I mean, he didn't choose his wife and... This just, this just shows us how little we understand love. Throughout history, many, many, many cultures have not allowed teenagers to run around with one another choosing who they're going to be in relationships with and then deciding who they're going to marry. We just find in the scripture this command, husbands, love your wives. Never mind whether you chose her. Never mind whether she is lovable in the way that we might think of deserving love or so. We don't we don't read anything like that in the scripture. We actually read that a husband's love for his wife is supposed to be like Christ's love for the church. How lovable are you? How lovable am I? And yet Christ laid down his life for us. Love can be commanded. Love is commanded. And Jacob did not love Leah as he ought. Calvin says, Rachel is loved, but not without wrong to her sister, to whom due honor is not given. So the problem here is not that Jacob loves Rachel too much, is that he loves Leah too little. Exodus 21 and verse 10 says this, If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. In other words, there's to be an equity of treatment. And again, this, the presence of this command in God's law doesn't mean that it's okay to have more than one wife. God's governing a nation and He's simply saying in the event that such and such occurs. It's like in Barbados, you have provisions for if someone murders someone, then what happens? It doesn't mean the Beijing government is saying, go ahead and murder. It's just saying, this is what will happen if such and such happens. And what we see is that God is concerned that if, in the event that someone takes more than one wife, that there's to be an equity of treatment. And that's not what's going on here in this section. And so what we see is another instance of God's discipline of Jacob. He closes Rachel's womb and opens Leah's. It's a correction by the Lord to the inappropriate division of Jacob's affections between Leah and Rachel. 
we see in this passage of Scripture that not only is God with Jacob for his good as he unfolds smiling providences to Jacob. He's with Jacob for his good when he unfolds disciplinary providences to Jacob. When he does things to Jacob, when he shapes Jacob's circumstances in such a way that Jacob probably wouldn't have chosen for himself, he is with Jacob for his good. He's causing Jacob to think about his own life. Think about his own choices. Think about his own affections. Think about his own sin. He's pushing Jacob, his son, to be reflective. To consider the ways in which he is mistreating the people around him. The way in which he the ways in which he is a sinner in order that he might be more and more conformed to that standard to which God is conforming all of His people. As it was for Jacob, so it is for us. Sometimes God's presence with us for our good feels good. He unfolds smiling providences to us, and we like it when that happens. And we have this feeling, God is with us for our good. But even in the hard times, even when God is chastising us for our sin, God is still with us for our good. Sometimes God's benevolence to us feels unpleasant. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is with us for our good, even as He disciplines us. Even as things that we've been waiting years for fail to materialize. Even as we are deceived, even as we are mistreated, Even as the dreams we have don't come to fruition. Even as we struggle with disappointments, letdowns, setbacks, obstacles. If we belong to God, if we have cast ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. For the salvation of our souls. If we've been adopted as sons through Christ Jesus. God is our Father and He cares for us. And He is with us for our good. Even when it doesn't feel good. Kent Hughes says, Far from being immune to discipline, God's children are the object of special discipline. In other words, God might actually make our lives harder than He makes the unbeliever's life. And God might do that on purpose. Listen, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is true. Is true for Christians. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Listen, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Listen, you've got to understand these things rightly though. 
Because when you belong to God, when He is your Father, He is going to discipline you. He is going to conform you to the character of Christ. And that is a wonderful plan for your life. And He is going to bring you to live with Him in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And listen, that's a land of prosperity. He's not harming you by doing that. By conforming you to Christ and bringing you to live with Him forever. But that's what God's up to in your life. And so God might actually be more lenient with those who are not His sons. And things might actually go smoother in an earthly sense for them because they're not His sons and He's not concerned to discipline them. But He disciplines you. Because He's with you for your good as He was with Jacob for His good. It's a movie that came out several years ago called Defiance, starring Daniel Craig, which is one of the guys that played James Bond in one of the recent James Bond movies. It's about the Jewish resistance in World War II. And in it, one of the characters prays like this. Merciful God, we commit our friends Ben Zion and Krensky to you. We have no more prayers, no more tears. We have run out of blood. Choose another people. We have paid for each of your commandments. We have covered every stone and field with ashes. Sanctify another land. Choose another people. Teach them the deeds and the prophecies. Grant us but one more blessing. Take back the gift of our holiness. Amen. We might be hesitant to verbalize that. But sometimes do we feel like that? As Asaph did as he penned Psalm 73, why the wicked seem to prosper. They go about always at ease. But here I am struggling. I'm under your heavy hand. We might not be so bold, so brash as to say it, choose another people. But sometimes maybe we feel like belonging to God and being under His fatherly hand of discipline is actually not good for us. Maybe sometimes we feel like God is not with us for our good. I wonder, Scripture doesn't tell us, so it's pure speculation. But I wonder when Laban deceived Jacob, whether he thought back to that dream. Jacob's ladder. And the promises that God made to be with him wherever he goes. And wondered, is God really with me for my good here in this situation? Or as his beloved was barren. Well, this wife that he didn't love as he ought has a fruitful womb. Is God really with me for my good? Indeed, God was with him for his good. Just didn't necessarily feel good.
in case you didn't know, you read Hebrew from right to left. And a commentator I read this week quoted John Flavel as saying, God's providence is like Hebrew letters. It must be read backwards. When we do just that, when we read God's providence backwards and look at the end, look back at the end, at the way He has dealt with us throughout, oftentimes we can see from that vantage point, at the end, what He's been doing all along. If you're a Christian, you can be sure that God is with you for your good, whether it feels good or whether it doesn't feel good. What situations might you be in where you feel God doesn't care? He's not with you for your good. Consider, how might He be disciplining you and shaping you now? Instead of complaining and mistrusting, what about submitting to and cooperating with God's good purposes for you in the midst of this, whatever this might be? What is God doing to make you more like Christ? What does God want you to think about in terms of your own character? What does God want you to think about in terms of your own sin? Your own path forward? What is God doing through your circumstances? For you? For your good? I quoted to you earlier the first half of Romans 8.32 which says, God did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. The last half of Romans 8.32 says, How will He not also with Him Graciously give us all things. Brothers and sisters, we can look at the cross and we can know that God is for us. He's on our side. He cares about us. And He is not unwilling to pay a great price for your good. He didn't even spare His Son but gave Him up for us all. The logic is, if He didn't even spare His Son, but gave Him up for you, how is He going to withhold any lesser thing? Christian, you know from the promises of God in Scripture, like Genesis 28, where God promised to Jacob, and implicitly all who have that same relationship to Yahweh as Jacob, to be with you for your good. And we know from looking at the cross, that God is for us, for our good. He's at work for your good right now. And we're going to see from that vantage point at the end, looking back, reading God's providence like Hebrew, backwards. We're going to know that He's been at work for our good the whole time, even when it didn't feel good. Just as He was at work for Jacob's good the whole time that Jacob was in Haran.
So again, instead of complaining and mistrusting, submit to the providence of God in your life and cooperate with His good purposes in whatever circumstances you're facing. Seek to be conformed to the character of Christ.